Please join me in prayer. Loving God, we ask that you would meet us at the well, that we might taste some of this living water that flows from your word, from your stories, from your example. And that the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts may be truly acceptable in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. And let the people say, Amen. Some of you with good memories will recall that we had this passage last March in worship. It was the weekend that I fell and ruptured my knee and had surgery and I was not here and our plucky seminarian stepped in with 48 hours notice and preached a sermon. As you know, we are getting used to having good seminarians who preach good sermons, so be careful what happens. (laughs) I did not get to preach my sermon that week, and it's been gestating in me now for 11 months, so I hope I have something to give you today about this text, about the classic story of the woman at the well. As we were rereading it in our worship planning meetings, I was struck by how it seems in these stories from the Gospel of John that Jesus is talking at one level, and the people he's talking with are talking at a whole different level. It's like two separate conversations going on, and we're only hearing parts of each one. She's come there to get some water to drink to sustain her physically, and he's talking about this living water. She's talking about worshiping in Jerusalem, and he says, the time will come when you will worship the Creator in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? You see, there's a difference going on, and this is often the case in the Gospel of John. It is believed that John was, although writing the story from a Jewish perspective, speaking to a Hellenistic audience, that is, to people who might have been influenced by the Greeks, who had high-minded ideas of Greek spirituality and Greek philosophy. In our modern context, you might say, oh, it's for those people over in Cambridge who think they're so high-minded as if we on this side of the river don't know anything about philosophy or spirituality. It is interesting because, as one of my friends says, in John's Gospel, Jesus always walks about four feet off the ground. John makes it very clear that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is eternal. And as we heard last week, there is something in what Jesus is teaching us that if we want to understand eternal things, we have to focus on God does here in the world. I'll have to say, though, I find this talking at different levels annoying. I just want to say, Jesus Christ, say what you mean, man. (laughs) But the thing is, he is saying what he means. He does want us to focus on eternal things. He does want us to live in this life, but to have some sense of the eternal, of the spirit of truth that is ongoing throughout the universe at all times in us and with us, and through us. Now, as I wrote to you in my blog this week, this seems like a normal interaction, which I'm grateful to Ashwin and Jennifer for enacting in us. Sometimes these stories from John are hard to hear just from one voice, and next week we've got a doozy for you, so be prepared. But it seems like any sort of watering hole we might have, our local bar or coffee shop or the watering hole at the office where you just talk shop, maybe exchange a little gossip. And yet there's a lot more going on under the surface here. For instance, as the disciples point out indignantly, why is he talking to a woman? That just wouldn't happen in first century Palestine. 
In fact, men did not speak on the streets to their wives, generally. There was a complete separation. So the fact that Jesus is even talking to this woman is a radical act in and of itself. Now, you can go throughout history of this text and see a shame show that goes on with this woman from Samaria. She had five husbands, and the man she's living with now is not her husband. I've heard sermons preached on this about the sins of adultery. But I don't think that's actually what's going on with this woman. I don't know why she had five husbands. I don't know if one died. I don't know if she was asked according to the law or forced according to the law to then marry her brother-in-law. I don't know if some of them gave up on her. In those days, all a man had to do to divorce a woman was shout in the streets three times, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and it's done. She had no rights in this deeply patriarchal society. So I'm actually more curious about the harm done to this woman by her five husbands and the men in her lives and the culture around her. I imagine she carried the weight of shame in this village and she went out to that well only when she thought no one was looking because she didn't want to have to interact with anyone who was going to drive the wound a little deeper of what had been a hard part of her life. Any of us who've ever tried intimate relationships know you don't always get it right on your first try. And my guess is that this woman had tried several times to make things work. And for whatever reason, it didn't work out for her. Jesus doesn't care. Jesus is looking eye to eye, soul to soul with her, at her deep humanity and her shared childhood in the family of God. There's another thing going on here that we don't necessarily get at first reading or seeing it enacted, which is, the piece about she is from Samaria and Jesus is a Jew. We talk about this when we tell the story of the Good Samaritan. See, it's all lost on us now. But Jesus is traveling from Judea to Galilee and going through Samaria, which you would have avoided. It's like they used to say in Boston, don't go to Southie because they're going to yell insults and throw things at you. Or some people would say, don't go to Roxbury and Dorchester because it's dangerous. Or some people say, don't go through Brookline because the police will stop you because of the way you look. That's what Samaria was like for a lot of people. And so the fact that Jesus, a Jew, is even going into this place is pretty radical in and of itself. You see, Jews and Samaritans had just enough in common to disagree about who were the chosen people of God, thinking that there couldn't be more than one chosen people. Does that sound familiar at all to any of us? And so, what happens is that they both studied the Torah, though not the same version. That sounds familiar. They both worshipped in a temple, though not the same one. That's familiar today. And they both claimed to be God's chosen people. Each viewed one another as vile imposters, unclean, In the sight of the God. A Samaritan did not want to drink from the same well as a Jew any more than a Jew wanted to drink from the same well as a Samaritan. And yet, they come together around this well and something about living water. Last summer and two summers ago, I was traveling from Judea through Samaria to Galilee and back. And I met two people who live on the West Bank. Samaria today is known as the West Bank. Hanan Schlesinger, an Orthodox Jewish rabbi from Brooklyn who's lived his whole adult life in the West Bank, devout and sustaining and teaching a good and righteous man. 
One day he was showing uh, an evangelical pastor from the States around his neighborhood, a guy who helps run a camp up in Maine called Seeds of Peace, where they bring Jewish and Palestinian children together for camp. He was showing him around the West Bank, and he picked up a hitchhiker. And the pastor said, wow, you all are nice here. You pick up hitchhikers. And Rabbi Hanan said, yeah, we always pick up hitchhikers, all of them. And then something clicked for him, and he realized that's not the whole truth. I only pick up the Jewish hitchhikers. I've never picked up a Palestinian hitchhiker in my life. And yet we live side by side and pass each other all the time. In fact, I've never had a conversation with a Palestinian, even though they are as close as my next neighbor. So Rabbi Hanan started thinking about this more and more. And one day he got invited by some group to go meet some Palestinians. And he decided, God is leading me to do this. I should go meet them. His wife said, are you crazy? You're going to go into that room and you're going to be killed. He said, no, I've got to do this. And he went in and he made friends. An Orthodox Jewish rabbi and a former member of the Palestinian Liberation Organization named Ali Abu Awad became friends. You see, Ali had his own story of never talking to Jews because he and his mother were involved with this struggle with the Israeli state. They spent years in prison. His brother was killed by Israeli soldiers. All he saw were Israelis as the enemy, even though they lived side by side, even though he was occupied by them. As he said, I believe that Israelis didn't know what it means to lose a child. I grew up believing that Jewish people had no tears. They didn't even understand tears. So these two started a friendship. And they started an organization to replicate this friendship. You see, sometimes when you're not expecting it, there is a living water that starts to gush forth and may take you into eternity. Ali, Abu, and Hanan have started this organization called Roots. You can look it up, friendsforroots.net. They'll actually be here in Boston next month. I plan to go see them again. But they believe, like we say in the Christian scriptures, that whenever two or three are gathered in my name, I am with you. They believe, like Margaret Mead said, Never doubt that a small group of committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. See, I wonder, well, first of all, I know that what Jesus is talking about, the living water, is God's kind of living water. But what does it look like for you and me on a daily basis? And I just wonder if it means replicating this interaction in some way so that we go across divisions, divisions that have been set up for us by others, by ourselves, and really connect with the image of God in one another. Anna and I were in a meeting of political leaders across Boston this week, clergy folks involved in the political process, and one of them said, we're taking the practice in our church of saying, like our Hindu friends say, of namaste, but instead we say, the image of God in me honors the image of God in you. And that's what I believe may have been happening at the well. And I believe when you and I do it, living water may gush forth again into some sort of spring of eternity. This interaction made me think about the Me Too movement and what's going on and how valiantly and courageously women all over the world are speaking up. 
as someone who was the object of sexual harassment and also a successful plaintiff in a case, I can tell you it's not just women and men. But it is all of us standing up and starting a conversation of what it means to treat one another with respect and honor the image of God in you that is also in me. It makes me think not about only our Palestinian and Israeli friends, but the divide in this country, which I will tell you haunts me quite a bit. I told you in my Thanksgiving sermon that there's a group out in the Bay Area that has started a movement called Make America Dinner Again. And they get together people on opposite sides of the political divide, and they share a dinner, and they learn each other's stories about what shaped their identities, and then they retell the story to the group in the first person. So in this case, Jesus would have told the Samaritan woman's story in the first person, and the Samaritan woman would have told Jesus' story in the first person, because it deepens our empathy. I called those folks in the Bay Area, and we're looking after Easter to schedule one of those dinners here at United Parish. But on a deeper level, I may have shared with you that in my family, we are riven down the middle, the four of us, by politics and theology. And so I've been preaching this for a while, and I decided I better practice what I preach, and I reached out to my brother... And I said, we have got to talk. Because we were taught the same values from the same parents, from the same schools, the same church, and yet you and I vote differently, and we look at God differently. What do we share in common, and what separates us, and why? And my prayer is that living water may gush forth into something eternal. Because, you see, it is not just about what is going on here and now that you and I read and scares us half to death in the papers. It is about what is going on in eternity and how you and I tap into that again and again with each interaction. That's my challenge for all of us, that we may seek that living water, that we may go find it, that we may drink of it, and that we may share it again and again. And maybe... Just maybe we'll really learn to worship the Creator in spirit and truth. Amen.